0: Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, with thankful hearts that we are still able in our society to freely gather and to worship you. We understand all around the world that this is a very difficult thing in many societies, and many are under literal, physical persecution because of their faith. Father, we're grateful for the freedoms that you have given to us, and as we see many of those freedoms eroding in this country, I pray that as a people across this country, we will gather in prayer to seek the hand and the mind of God to transform this nation and to give us godly leadership and men and women who would respect morality and the law of God. Father, I pray that we will do so in our own hearts, that we will be more a people of prayer. And as we study the word this morning, may the instructions there uh, be taken into our hearts. And may we not only, as James says, be hearers of the word, but doers also. We thank you for the presence of your spirit here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to Genesis chapter 27, you all should have page 50 in your hands. Outline page 50. If you don't, uh, Dolores has copies, just raise your hand and she'll give you a copy. Genesis chapter 27, we'll begin reading uh, with verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old, and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son? And he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. This passage reminds me again, as many passages do, that uh, if we ever feel inclined to put a halo over the heads of the saints of the Scripture, be they Old Testament or New Testament, passages such as this chapter tend to dissuade us uh, from that. (laughs) Isaac, uh, Rebekah, Jacob, these are outstanding characters in the development of the plan of redemption, key figures in God's uh, transmission of the covenant from Abraham on down. And yet we see here... They demonstrate very really that saints have feet of clay. D.F. Payne, in in, in his contribution to the International Bible Commentary, makes this succinct statement. He says, it is a story showing human behavior and motives at their worst. Favoritism, deceit, foolish credulity, and murderous vindictiveness doesn 't sound like a very uh, good uh, series of statements to be said about god 's people, but unfortunately it is often true. We have to kind of put ourselves back in the society of this time now. We have to go back four thousand years and we have to look uh, at the society of the Near East at that time to understand a little bit of the background here of this passage in the society of that day, the oral blessing or if it happened to be a cursing, of the patriarch of the clan apparently carried the force of law. Whatever that blessing was, was considered to be virtually inviolable. Thus once pronounced, the blessing, or if it were a cursing, is or was unretractable. And that's very important for us to grasp as we look at this chapter. Because if it were retractable, a lot of the problems of this chapter would have been resolved, at least as far as Esau was concerned. But because the blessing was not retractable, uh, this creates much of the uh, drama that we find in this chapter. Now, we don't know whether Isaac himself respected the sale of the birthright from Esau to Jacob. (laughs) Whether he acknowledged that as being genuine or not, we're not uh, informed in, in the Scripture here. But we do discover in this passage that Isaac was insistent that he was going to give the patriarchal blessing to Esau. This he was intent on doing, and nothing was going to stop him in his own mind. So here we have the godly patriarch, the man who is pictured in Scripture as a man of peace, a peacemaker, if you will, in his uh, contact with the Philistines particularly. But he is fearful here that his favorite son, the one he has shed, uh, uh, showered his love upon, uh, is not going to get his due, at least what Isaac thought was his due as the firstborn. And so he acts very impetuously and also, as we discover, very prematurely. Because he was nearly blind and possibly totally blind, it would seem from what uh, tra- uh, transpires here that he was uh, probably totally blind, at least so blind he couldn't distinguish one son from the other by sight. Uh, he, was, he was going blind, or, or, or he was blind, and he was suffering all kinds of grief. He probably was feeling like some of us feel some days, you know, like, oh man, I'm one step from death here. Uh, because we feel uh, not well that particular day. I think much of the grief he experienced is the grief that we uh, read about as we uh, remember back into the chapter before, the last verse, referring to Esau's wives, where it says they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Family grief can make one feel <laughs> hold fast, and this may have been a contributing factor. Whatever was the case, he felt death was near. <clears throat> Actually, we will discover that he was many, many years from death, possibly as much as half a century away from death. So it wasn't like death was really impending, but he thought it was. He felt that it was. I think we can accept that that was a genuine feeling on his part. Now, in spite of all that had transpired in the life of Esau, the life of Jacob, in spite of what he knew was God's word, because Rebekah certainly shared the word of the Lord with her husband concerning the two sons. And also, regardless of Rebekah's desires in this whole matter, he was insistent, determined, to follow tradition and to honor the firstborn son. I think as we look at Isaac... We probably could say that in his weaker moments, as we noted from an earlier chapter, it's very possible that he had in his mind, uh, you know, looking back over his life, he had been a very responsible man, and, and he probably said in his heart from time to time, "Oh, I wished I could have had a carefree existent existence." Have you ever felt like you could live another life? You know, after this one's over, live another one and live it differently, and see what that was like, and then try maybe another a third. I don't know. Maybe you haven't. (laughs) But uh, it's possible that Isaac here thought, boy, it would have been nice if I could try the carefree existence that Esau has been living. This kind of a devil may care. You know, I don't have to be responsible. I can just go do my thing. I can go out and spend all my life hunting in the field and not take care of anything. And uh, just think how nice that would be. It's sort of like sometimes you wonder, would it be nice just to be able to be like some of these people who who, who don't have a job and don't have a home and don't have a car and they just walk around the countryside eating off the trees and sleeping under the trees until you really look at them closely and talk to them, you discover, no, I don't think I'd like to live like that. But, uh, you know, every once in a while that might uh, strike a bone when the responsibilities seem to be weighing down upon us. This, this could have been a thought in his mind that uh, caused him to lean in this direction. He had borne the responsibility of the household ever since it had been transferred to him from Abraham, and he had borne it well. The scripture tells us in the last passage that we read in the, in the previous chapter that uh, God had blessed him and that his wealth had multiplied, his household had multiplied. He'd become a very powerful Bedouin Sheik. I think, though, whatever may have been his inner longings to have a, co- a more carefree life or to have lived at least vicariously in Esau, there was probably a more serious note And I think that in his mind there was the thought that if he were to transfer now the blessing and the responsibility upon Esau, maybe Esau will become a responsible man. Maybe Esau will become a God-fearing man and become the leader that he ought to be. Maybe he will become worthy of of being the carrier of the covenant. Remember Abraham's thought concerning Ishmael before Isaac was born. Oh, Lord, that Ishmael might be your chosen man. God said no, and Abraham accepted that. But Abraham had in his heart the desire that this man that he loved might be the one who would be acceptable to God as the carrier of the covenant. And so this seems to possibly at least be Isaac's thought concerning Esau, and thus he was planning to pass the patriarchal mantle on to Esau. Now, it's interesting, at least I think it's interesting, that Isaac didn't say to Esau, go do something responsible so that you can prove to me that you're worthy of this. He actually encourages him to go ahead and carry on his, his uh, uh, irresponsible preoccupation of going out in the field and hunting all the time. Now, if you weren't here when we talked about that earlier, which several of you weren't, You might think, well, what is so irresponsible about hunting? Well, there's nothing necessarily irresponsible about hunting. But when you're living in the society that they lived in, they were a cattle-raising people. They had goats and sheep and cattle. I mean, they had them by the tens of thousands. There was no need to hunt. There was not a need there. It wasn't something to do to supply a, a basic need in society or, or, you know, in the diet of that day. It was, it was a fun thing. It was something he did because, as in Esau's case, he wanted to shirk responsibility. And we, we notice that in our own society. There are many who uh, would rather spend their whole weekend out uh, doing, quote, fun things than being responsible for their, their family. And being the leader, they should be in the home. It's just a lot easier to do that. And so many live their lives uh, for their avocation rather than for their family. And so this was really the case, I think, uh, for Esau. And on top of that, he is catering. The the point was to cater to to Isaac's appetite, too. He wanted this dish that he loved so that he could then bless his, uh, his son. So in a sense... I think we discover both men are prostituting here the real meaning of the patriarchal blessing. This was a solemn thing. This was an important thing. And yet neither were taking it seriously uh, at this juncture, it would seem. Verse 5. And Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game, to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my, my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice kids from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob answered his mother Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. Then I shall be a deceiver in his sight, and I shall bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were in her house, literally her tent, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. So she gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. It's very, very obvious from this passage that uh, Isaac had not discussed his intentions with his wife, Rebecca. She discovered his plan by eavesdropping, tent door dropping, or whatever it was in that day. Tents were uh, not exactly soundproof, so it probably wasn't terribly difficult uh, to do. Now, whether she... We habitually listened in on her husband's conversations, or was just suspicious about this one, we, we cannot tell. The events of this chapter are very important in illustrating to us, I think, how a husband and a wife are not to treat each other. Now, we know from understanding the society of, of that particular day and and Isaac's position in it, that uh, by custom, it was not incumbent upon the clan patriarch to seek his wife's advice on any matter. His his decision was final. His decision was the law for the clan. And he did not have to seek any counsel from anyone. But he not only is not seeking counsel, he is being very, very secretive in this whole thing. Only he and Esau are to know what is happening here. This is a very unwise action on the part of Isaac. Scripture teaches us that a wise king has many counselors. In the Christian home today, it would seem from Scripture that all important matters affecting the family should be discussed by the husband and the wife together and prayed over together. We know from Genesis and from the frequent repetition through Scripture that when husband and wife are joined together, the Scripture says they become one flesh. And as we become one flesh, we become equally involved, and we should be equally involved in all of the decision-making process that involves the family. If we do not, then the devil gets a foothold. And he can create a rift in the family, just as he did here between Isaac and Rebekah. I mean, there's such a rift between them that they cannot even talk about this matter together in a civil way, apparently. And so they do not even make the effort. Now, whatever was the custom of the day? Now, whatever was Isaac's privilege and whatever was Rebekah's responsibility is To me, not really significant. It's obvious that he not only didn't seek her advice, he avoided informing her at all of what he was intending to do. Now, that couldn't be right even in that society. When you think about it, particularly when you realize, or when we realize, that Isaac and Rebekah were supposed to be the carriers of the covenant. They were God's people. They weren't supposed to live the same way the world around them lived they were to live differently. Oh, certainly they didn't have scripture in front of them to teach them all these truths, but they knew in their hearts from the encounters that they had had personally with God and through the teaching of Abraham uh, in the years before, a certain basic understanding of how a godly person would differ from the person in the world. And so what do we have here? Isaac not only doesn't inform his wife, he tries to slip it by her so that it will happen. Uh, you know, it'll be a de facto thing. I mean, it'll already have happened. A fait accompli, I guess, is, is what we're looking at here. And, and she could do nothing about it because it was unretractable. His attitude was wrong towards his wife, and, of course, her attitude is not right here either, in what she does. Now, unfortunately, we discover even in Christian homes today, and and many of us have heard about these situations, we have situations where husbands and wives treat each other much in the way that Rebecca and Isaac treat each other. Each goes his or her own way and doesn't bother to inform the other, let alone include the other in the decision-making process. And this is very divisive. It shatters homes. Scripture, of course, is very clear as to how husbands and wives are to live together. And you and I have heard many sermons uh, relative to that. God puts special emphasis upon marriage, the marriage relationship, because that marriage relationship pictures the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. Let's just for a moment turn to the uh, fifth chapter of Ephesians, which could be the cardinal passage that teaches this importance of this relationship and its figurative meaning. Much spoken on, and sometimes much misemphasized in part. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives... Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband literally fear, stand in awe of. Sometimes that's hard to do. What, what this passage tells us you know, in, in just brief summation is that true love and true respect have got to be at the root of marriage. If we don't truly love one another and truly respect one another, then we're going to be on rocky ground. And there's going to be opportunity for the devil to enter and to cause a rift, as he did in the case of Isaac and Rebekah. Some husbands see only verses 22, 23, and 24, where it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands and everything. And some just stop right there, you know. Well, that's the word of the Lord. So, you know, they, they pound their wives into submission, or they attempt to do so. And sometimes wives see only verse 25, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you know, and be willing to die for her. And, you know, there can be this imbalance, this, this mis of the passage of scripture, rather than seeing it as a whole and trying to see that relationship as compared to the relationship of Christ and the church. When we see that relationship in that light, it makes marriage a much more uh, holy thing. It helps us to realize the importance of our commitment to each other and the fact that it's not just another transaction or another relationship in life or something that we can opt in or opt out at any time that we want to simply because you know, we're uh, you know, incompatible or some, some other silly thing. Isaac and Rebekah, of course, do not break their marriage. They, they stay together. But it sure seems like, at least in this uh, instance concerning the two sons, that there is a great valley between the two. And we saw this earlier in the previous chapter where it says that Rebekah loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. And that created a, a, a mountain or a valley, whichever <laughs> a description you want to use, um, between them. When we misemphasize this Ephesians' passage, or we, we get out of balance in our understanding of relationship between husband and wife, it's usually because of our selfishness. It's also often the result of immaturity. Most of us like to think as years are piled onto us, that we are becoming more mature. Uh, but to get older chronologically does not necessarily bring maturity. Uh, there are some old, immature people) <laughs> And there are some young, mature people. It has to do, of course, with wisdom really developing in the life, knowledge becoming practical, practical and used so that we become wise. Now, we're tempted from time to time to be selfish. Every single one of us is. Uh, and, and sometimes we all act in an immature way, and you know, just in a moment sometimes. We, we flash in, in a way that is not of God and is purely of the flesh. Uh, And then the world encourages us to do that. Just watch television or read the commercials. And these commercials are always advocating that we act in a selfish, immature way. You know, get all the gusto for yourself, because if you don't do it, nobody's going to do it for you. Uh, And it's just the world's way. And as children of God, we must be different. We must follow the teachings of Scripture. We are not to live according to the standards of the world, and neither were Isaac and Rebecca. So again, whatever was Isaac's right as clan chief, he had to act differently from the non-godly clan chiefs, particularly in relationship to his wife and his family. Now Isaac hatched a plan. So Rebecca hatched a counterplan. And the two plants, of course, work in diametric opposition to each other. She brought her scheme to her son Jacob. Now, was there another option for Rebecca? Well, one of the most obvious options was confront her husband. Go to him and say, but the Lord has said, the elder shall serve the younger. What are you doing? Now, would that have helped? <coughs> well, we don't know. She didn't try it. Instead, she opted for a secret effort to outwit her husband, which apparently wasn't that difficult, but nevertheless was uh, a, uh, not, a, not a right thing to do in this situation. Obviously, they couldn't discuss the issue of their sons uh, in a civil way, it would seem. We have no record in in these passages of Rebecca acting contrary to her husband before this time. But she apparently at this time felt it was important for her to oppose her husband on this point. It was important for her. It was important for Jacob. It was important for all of God's plan. I've got to do this. Certainly she felt she was in the right. After all, had not God said... The elder shall serve the younger. I've got right on my side. What was her real motivation, though? Was her real deep down motivation that word of the Lord? Or was it not her love for Jacob, her preference for Jacob, her desire that her loved son would get the preference and get the preferable position? I, I think that may have been more the, dri- the driving force and that the word of God was simply the, uh, you know, sort of the excuse to do what she did. So rather than beseeching God, which was another option she could have taken? She could have said, Oh, Lord, you have promised that the elders shall serve the younger. What is happening here? What are you going to do? I stand here waiting for you to act. You know, she could have taken that option. But she chose instead to use her ingenuity to save the situation for God. Again, remember Abraham and Sarah and their attempt to save the situation for God. And what did it result in? Well, it resulted in a rift between Abraham and Sarah focusing on Hagar. And then it resulted in a problem son, ...who is still a problem today, and they've just had a slight peace between the problem brothers uh, over there, even as of yesterday. Of course, and, and this to me is, is so important, and uh, somehow we have to understand this. God knew what Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah would do in these situations... God knew the whole outworking of their lives before it ever took place. God was not surprised when Ishmael was born. God knew it all along. And God certainly had a better plan. Isaac was born. Isaac was born miraculously. This was God's plan. God could have saved the blessing for Jacob without her interference. But God sovereignly chose, and and to me this is critical because we have this clash between those who say God is sovereign and everything that happens is is the sovereign will of God. Well, there's a lot of things that are difficult to explain if we look at it that way. What we have to see here is that God sovereignly chose to let them make this choice. He has not abdicated his sovereignty. He didn't abdicate his sovereignty when he allowed you and me to come into existence and he gave to us the opportunity to choose to obey him or not. So in his sovereignty, he allowed them to make this choice and to carry out their plan. As they schemed. But he also sovereignly chose to allow them to suffer the consequences of their faithless and rash actions. What was the result of their action here? Well, one result was an intensity intensifying of the hatred between Jacob and Esau to the point it became murderous. And that's why Jacob has to flee, because he knew Esau was ready to do him in. That's intense hatred. Before, they didn't get along too well, they didn't like each other too much, but neither was quite ready to do the other in. But now, that point has been reached. Another result would be the exile of Jacob. Here is her beloved son. Rebekah loves Jacob. She wants Jacob to be around. But instead, he is exiled for 20 years, and she will never see him again because she will die before he's able to return to the land. And uh, thirdly, no, we don't know how God would have chosen for uh, Jacob to have obtained a wife uh, had this not intervened uh, here. But we know that one of the results uh, was the fact that he ended up with two wives and he ended up with two concubines and he ended up with all the domestic strife that that produced. I mean, it was not a happy home. And you can imagine with, with four women competing for the love of one man, particularly the two, Rachel and Leah. And uh, that too, I think, must be seen as somehow an outworking of this deception. As we have noted before, the fact that God records the follies of his people, as well as their faithfulness, makes the word of God so much more real and precious to us, because we understand that God understands us. Again, you know, if we looked in the Word of God and we only found perfect people, we only found people who did what was right in the sight of of the Lord, and they never failed all their lives, we'd look at that and we'd say, it's hopeless for me, you know. I can't be a believer. I can't follow the Lord. But when we look at the great men and women of Scripture and we find they failed, and sometimes they failed miserably, and they failed in ways that even the world saw as evil, then, not that we should be encouraged to go ahead and act that way, but that helps us to know that God understands and God loves and God accepts us and God forgives us as we come to him in humility and faith. He can relate to us and thus we to him. But God also records the results of these lovely actions let's turn for a second to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever we sow, we shall reap. We tend to forget that sometimes and to uh, take the route that, hey, you know, God understands and God forgives, so, you know, let's let's not be too worried about it. Isaac and Rebekah, this was a couple that was God's choice. God loved Isaac. God loved Rebecca. They were the transmitters of the covenant. They were God's people. As far as we know, in the hour of that day, there was no other true believer. I mean, probably there were. But we don't know of any others, except, of course, Jacob here, at this particular time, as far as Scripture is concerned. And yet, they acted foolishly. And they would reap the fruit of their folly. Uh, God allows us to reap the fruit of our folly even as God's children and hopefully this acts as some form of discipline to us and yet God brought good out of the situation how often does the scripture say you know that God works everything together for good that God even takes the wrath of man to turn it to his praise God is able to take what seems to be evil and make good out of it make the furtherance of his plan accomplish the furtherance of his plan. God will accomplish his sovereign purpose in spite of us if he must. But through us is his choice. He wants to work through us to bring about his will. But if we won't be his instrument, he will accomplish it some other way. God saw to it that the, uh, the mantle of blessing, the, the covenant was transferred to Jacob. Now, it doesn't seem that this would have been God's choice. God doesn't use evil to bring about good. I mean, that's not his intention to begin with. He will do that. But he didn't put this plan of deception in the mind of Rebecca. This was her own plan. God allowed it to take place, and God brought good out of it. When we refuse to allow him to work through us, we suffer the pain as a result. Because we are believers doesn't mean we'll live a pain free existence, obviously. And God will bring uh, the fruit of our actions into our lives if we choose to disobey. We have in this passage Rebecca's choice now to reveal her plan to Jacob, which she does in verse 9. She says, Listen to me, my son, and go do this. You know, go out and get to. Uh, kids from the flock. Now, she knew very well how to prepare the meal that Isaac loved. And so she asked her son to get the meat so that she could prepare it. Now, the scripture says it was a savory dish. It must have been very savory. It had to be savory so that Isaac wouldn't be able to tell the difference between goat and gazelle or or deer or whatever it was that... um, Esau was going to bring home. We assume it was venison, you know, some sort of product of the hunt. Uh, in that part of the world in those days, there were three general animal types that would be most likely, the, the what was called the fallow deer, which was very similar uh, to the deer we find here in North America. There was the roe deer which had somewhat similar in appearance to a gazelle, and then there were various varieties of gazelle. Uh, it could have been any of these animals that he went out to hunt and, and that he brought back. But she was obviously able to spice the dish up so that he couldn't tell that it was not that and that it was domestic goat instead. Now, Jacob's no dummy. <laughs> he listens to his mother's plan and he has some problems with it. Because he didn't want to be caught attempting to deceive his father. Because he knew that that would be worse than just letting Esau have the blessing. Because if he goes out and, and his father catches him in this deception, he's not gonna, he will not only not receive the blessing, but his father might curse him. And that curse was as much to be feared as the blessing was to be sought after. Notice in verse 12, Perhaps my father will feel me, then I shall be a deceiver in his sight, and I shall bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. Now in our society today, if somebody curses us, we just, you know, we don't think of it as meaning anything in particular, that this person has a warped mind, you know. But in the society of that day, it was a very, very serious thing. Particularly when coming from the mouth of the patriarch of the clan. And so Jacob was fearful. Isaac may have been blind, but he was able to feel and to smell quite well. And he knew that, you know, is he just going to listen to me from a distance? Or is he going to want me to come close so that he could touch me? I'm a smooth man. And my brother's a hairy man. It's not too difficult to tell the difference. So, I am afraid. Well, Rebecca, aha, uh-huh, she wasn't just thinking on one point. I mean, she had clicked off all down the line. She had already thought of all the problems and, and, and brought up solutions all the way down the line. The only problem we discover in the passage that she didn't overcome, maybe that was not overcomeable in those days, was the voice problem. But uh, apparently that didn't matter, ultimately, anyway. Rebecca had taken it into account. And so she vehemently urged her son, cooperate with me, son. (laughs) Do what I ask of you. Don't argue with me. Just do what I'm asking you to do. I will take the curse upon myself if such a curse comes. And she was serious about this matter. And so she sent her son into the flocks to bring back the kids. And, you know, uh, she had spoken truly. Because had a curse come upon Jacob, it would have fallen upon her too. Because she was the instigator of the plot. Well, I don't think Jacob skipped out into the flock lighthearted. I think he went out into the flock with fear and trepidation. His thoughts going through his mind, I hope this works. If it doesn't, we're dead, you know, so to speak. And so he went out to the herdsman, and he asked for the herdsman to bring him two kids, kid of goats, and, and he took them, and he butchered them, and he brought him to his mother. Rebecca prepared them in the manner that she knew that her husband Isaac loved while Jacob stood around and fidgeted and fretted. Oh, I'm sure he did this and did that for her as she asked. But, you know, in his mind, he was worried. He was fearful. I mean, he had stage fright, if you will. Well, with the food finishing, Rebecca revealed the rest of her uh, her plan. The rest of her plan here to her son. I'm going to dress you as Esau. It's a good thing Esau was a boy. I'm going to dress you as Esau. And uh, somehow she found some clothing of Esau around the tent there. And the best that she could find, she put it on him. Now remember, society in that day didn't have this, uh, what do I want to say? wasn't quite committed to daily bathing and to the washing of clothes uh, that we are in our society. I'm thankful for what we're committed to in our society. (laughs) I'm not faulting that. But that wasn't a practice in those days. So, you know, Esau's garments smell like Esau and smell like the fields uh, through which he tramped as he went on his hunting ventures. And that was the point. Isaac will probably be able to smell just fine. And he will smell these garments and know that this is the smell of Esau. And so she put these garments on her son Jacob. Now, just how hairy was Esau? (laughs) Well, he was so hairy that it took the skin of these kid of goats to convince him this was his real son Esau, you know. So she put the, now notice it's pretty wise here. She could have probably picked some goat hide laying around, but that would be stiff and and unnatural. She took the hide of the goats that had just been killed. And so it was still supple and and maybe even a little warm And, and put it on the back of his hand and up his arm. It probably wasn't really a great feeling for Jacob, but put it on there and on the back of his neck. It doesn't say how he kept it on there, but... Somehow she knew how to, to fasten it, to sew it on or whatever. So it would seem relatively natural. So Jacob is dressed to deceive. Dressed in his brother's garments, kid skins strapped to his arms, hands, and neck. He went in to his father with this dish of savory meat. Can you picture it? You know, Walking into the tent here. Father, get up. I've got your food here all that you have wanted. Now, Rebecca, of course, is in the background here. She's prob- she, she may be watching what's going on because Isaac can't see her. Doesn't say she was, but uh, certainly she was paying attention to what was going on here. This is a real drama. It's very, very important that this drama click off right on schedule because Esau's out there hunting and they don't know how soon Esau's going to get that uh, game and going to be back with it and uh, prepare it and, and bring it in. And it would really be a bad scene <laughs> if while Esau, uh, Isaac, Jacob's in there presenting the food and, and uh, getting ready to receive the blessing, Esau walks in. Uh, so you can imagine that they're kind of on pins and needles here. <laughs> Whoops, let's get this over with. Come on, Isaac, eat this food here and get this blessing going here. The time frame. What is the time frame? Certainly several hours elapse. Can't tell exactly how much time is here. How long does it take to to kill a goat and and to prepare it into this quote savory dish, and and bring it in and to prepare Jacob to be like Isaac. I mean I mean like Esau. How long does it take Esau to go out into the field and and kill a deer or a gazelle and and bring it back? Well, obviously he was pretty successful, because it doesn't seem like that long a time. I mean, some of you have done hunting, I'm sure, and you've gone out, and you may have spent days out there trying to get a deer, or maybe never got one either. Of course, in, in that day, the, the animals, I think, were more numerous per capita than they are in, uh, in our society. So it was very, very important that this meal be over, and that Jacob be gone before Esau comes. The next passage, of course, deals with the confrontation, the presentation of the food and of himself to his father, and of the blessing which is given. And you'll notice that great detail is given here. And a matter of of an hour of time is explained in many, many, many verses. And we've noted several times in scripture when whole years are summarized in a fraction of a verse. God is not attempting to record for us the historical step-by-step development of his plan of redemption, but he is emphasizing those moments which are critical for our understanding of how God acts and what God wants us to know about his character and about how we are to live in that light. And so we have great detail of, of this event which transpires and then, of course, of Esau's coming. And we will focus on those events uh, next week.